Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, if you caught my note on either Facebook or on our Salon blog, you know that my plan was to uh, take this month off from podcasting. But as you can tell, I just couldn't stay away very long. So uh, when Forrest R. sent in a donation the other day, I got to thinking that maybe not everybody wanted to take a little time away from the Salon and... So today, Forrest and I are joining you in a little extra summertime fun in the way of a talk by Aldous Huxley. So, uh, hey, thanks for the nudge, Forrest, and thanks for the donation. Uh, it's uh, just what I needed to remind me how much I enjoy being with you all here in the salon each week. Now, while many people say that the uh, modern ecology movement began with the publication of Silent Spring by Rachel Carlson, uh, I think it may be more accurate to take into account that a good many intellectuals of the time were also beginning to gain an ecological perspective. Uh, in fact, the talk we are about to hear was given on November 30th, 1962, which uh, was within just a few months of Carlson's book being published. And uh, as you'll soon hear, Aldous Huxley was also beating the drum for an ecological awakening back then. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it doesn't seem to me that we've made a lot of progress in the forward direction since the day this talk was delivered. And uh, maybe that's why we're here today, to uh, get rebooted into new action ourselves. Now, this talk was hosted by the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions, uh, which was based in Santa Barbara, California. And at the time, John Kennedy was still president. In fact, it would be less than a year later, on November 22nd of the following year, that Kennedy would be assassinated on the same day that Aldous Huxley also took his last breath two momentous events that no one suspected on the day this talk was given. I wish I could say that uh, I was on the ecological bandwagon back then myself, but at the time this talk was delivered, I was in my uh, third year of electrical engineering studies and was more focused on sailboats and women than on uh, doing things to help save our environment. Uh, and as a little historical side note, uh, I see that it was less than 30 days before this talk was given that a new concept first appeared in the mainstream press. Uh, you've probably heard about it by now, uh, but back then the concept uh, uh, about people having their very own personal computer was uh, as foreign to the world as were UFOs. So as we listen to this talk right now, try to uh, put your mind back into a world in which no one knew about the ozone holes dead zones in the ocean and uh, the huge islands of plastic trash that are uh, taking up sizable portions of the Central Pacific. Uh, I'd like to think that if we could all have clearly seen the future back then, then uh, maybe things would be different now. Huxley could see it, and uh, he did what he could to alert us to the dangers uh, that were not so very far ahead, dangers that are clear and present today. Now it's up to us, the uh, ones who can also see clearly now, to... Uh, do whatever we can, uh, at the very least, uh, maybe change our own personal affairs in ways that are somewhat more Earth-friendly. Anyhow, let's uh, now travel back in time to almost 50 years ago, uh, back before news of the American War in Vietnam had uh, made it to the front page, back when segregation was still the law of the land, and when the population of this little planet was less than one-half of what it is today. 
we open our symposium this morning. The definition of symposium in the dictionary is a drinking party with conversation. <laughs> this is said to be, however, the ancient Greek definition. The deterioration since Greek times is indicative of the fact that we have conversation with drinking parties on the side. They will come along and do a course. The Protestant ethic does not permit a uh, drinking party at this hour. <laughs> now, it is highly appropriate that we should open this discussion of the impact of science and technology on democratic institutions by presenting the man who first saw it all. In Brave New World, in Brave New World Revisited, Mr. Huxley has indicated the problems that we are now going to discuss. All of my generation were brought up on Chrome Yellow and Andy Kay, written by a brilliant young esthete in England, who since that time has retained the brilliance of his style and penetration, but has moved on even more interesting subjects than those with which he dealt in the carefree 20s. <coughs> Mr. Huxley is a constant attendant, I'm happy to say, at our discussions in Santa Barbara, and now that we're beginning, the most important one we ever had, I'm glad to have him here to introduce Mr. Huxley. May I remain sitting? Because it's, uh, I'm going to have to read with a glass. If you can sit loud, you can remain All right, sitting. I can sit loud. I'll try and sit loud, because I have difficulty in reading. Uh, this is, uh, the title of this thing is um, Democratic Institutions in the Context of Advancing Science and Technology. A sort of general introduction to the, this subject. In politics, the central and fundamental problem is the problem of power. Who is to exercise power and by what authority, with what pur uh, purpose in view and under what controls? Yes, under what controls? For as history has made it abundantly clear, to possess power is ipso facto to be tempted to abuse it. In mere self-preservation, we must create and maintain institutions that make it difficult for the powerful to be led into those temptations which, when succumbed to, transform them into tyrants at home and imperialists abroad. For this purpose, what kind of institutions are effective, and having created them, how can we guarantee them against obsolescence? Circumstances change, and as they uh, change, the old, the once so admirably effective devices for controlling power, cease to be adequate. What then? Specifically, when advancing science and acceleratingly progressive technology alter man's long-standing relationships with the planet, on which he lives, revolutionize his, his societies, and at the same time equip his rulers with new and immensely more powerful instruments of domination, what ought, we, what ought we to do? What can we do? Very briefly, let us review the situation in which we now find ourselves, and in the light of present facts, hazard a few guesses about the future. On the biological level, advancing science and technology have set going a revolutionary process 
that seems to be destined for the next century at least, perhaps for much longer, to exercise a decisive influence upon the destinies of all societies uh, and their individual members. In the course of the last 50 years, extremely effective methods for lowering the prevailing rates of infant and adult mortality were developed by Western scientists. These methods were very simple and could be applied with the expenditure of very little money by very small numbers of not very highly trained technicians. For these reasons, and because everyone regards life as intrinsically good and death as intrinsically bad, they were in fact applied on a worldwide scale. The results were spectacular. In the past, high birth rates were balanced by high death rates. Thanks to science, death rates have been halved, but except in the most highly industrialized, contraceptive-using countries, birth rates remain as high as ever. An enormous and accelerating increase in human numbers has been the inevitable consequence. At the beginning of the Christian era, so demog demographers assure us, our planet supported a human population of about 250 millions. When the Pilgrim Fathers stepped ashore, the figure had risen to about 500 millions. We see then that in the relatively recent past, it took 1,600 years for the human species to double its numbers. Today, world population stands at 3,000 millions. By the year 2000, unless something appallingly bad or miraculously good should happen in the interval, 6,000 millions of, of us will be sitting down to breakfast every morning. In a word, 12 times as many people are destined to double their numbers in one-fortieth of the time. And this is not the whole story. In many areas of the world, human numbers are increasing at a rate much higher than the average for the whole species. In India, for example, the rate of increase is now 2.3% per annum. By 1990, its 450 million inhabitants will have become 900 million inhabitants. A comparable rate of increase will raise the population of China to the billion mark by about 1980. In Ceylon, in Egypt, in many of the countries of South and Central America, human numbers are increasing at an annual rate of 3%. The result will be a doubling of their present populations in approximately 23 years. On the social, political and economic levels, what is likely to happen in an underdeveloped country whose population doubles itself in a single generation or even less? An underdeveloped society is a society without adequate capital resources, for capital is what is left over after primary needs have been satisfied, and in underdeveloped countries most people never satisfy their primary needs. It is also a society without a sufficient force of trained teachers, administrators and technicians, a society with few or no industries and few or no developed sources of industrial power, a society, finally, with enormous arrears in food production, education, road building, housing and sanitation to be made good. A quarter of a century from now, when there will be twice as many of them as there are today, what is the likelihood 
that the members of such a society will be better fed, better housed, clothed and schooled than at present. And what are the chances in such a society for the maintenance, if they already exist, or the creation, if they do not exist, of democratic institutions? Not long ago, Mr. Eugene Black, the president of the World Bank, <coughs> expressed the opinion that it would be extremely difficult, perhaps even impossible, for an underdeveloped country with a very rapid rate of population increase to achieve full industrialization. All its resources, he pointed out, would be absorbed year by year in the task of supplying, or not quite supplying, the primary needs of its new members. Merely to stand, uh, merely to stand still, merely to maintain its current subhumanly inadequate standard of living, will require hard work and the expenditure of all the nation's available capital. Available capital may be increased by loans and gifts from abroad, but in a world where the industrialized nations are involved in a power politics and an increasingly expensive armament race, there will never be enough foreign aid to make much difference, and even if the loans and gifts to underdeveloped countries were to be substantially increased, any resulting gains would be largely nullified by the uncontrolled population explosion. If Mr. Black is correct, and there are plenty of economists and demographers who share his opinion, the outlook for most of the world's newly independent and economically non-viable nations is gloomy indeed. To those that have shall be given. Within the next 10 or 20 years, if war can be avoided, poverty will almost have disappeared from the highly industrialized and contraceptive-using societies of the West. Meanwhile, in the underdeveloped and uncontrolledly breeding societies of Asia, Africa, and Latin America, the condition of the masses, twice as numerous a generation from now as they are today, will have become no better and may even be decidedly worse than it is present. Such a decline is foreshadowed by current uh, statistics of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. In, uh, in some underdeveloped regions of the world, we are told, uh, people are somewhat less adequately fed, clothed and housed than where their parents and grandparents 30 and 40 years ago. And what of elementary education? UNESCO recently provided an answer. Since the end of World War II, heroic efforts have been made to teach the whole world how to read. The population explosion has largely stultified these efforts. The absolute number of illiterates is greater now than at any time in the past. The contraceptive revolution, which, thanks to advancing science and technology, has made it possible for the highly developed societies of the West to offset the consequences of death control by a planned control of births, has had as yet no effect upon the family life of people in underdeveloped countries. This is not surprising. Death control, as I have already remarked, is easy, cheap, and can be carried out by a small force of technicians. Birth control, on the other hand, is rather expensive, involves the whole adult population, and demands of those who practice it a good deal of forethought and directed willpower. 
to persuade hundreds of millions of men and women to abandon their tradition-hallowed views of sexual morality, then to distribute and teach them to make use of contraceptive devices or fertility-controlling drugs. This is a huge and difficult task, so huge and so difficult that it seems very unlikely that it can be successfully carried out within a sufficiently short space of time in any of the countries uh, where control of birth rate is most urgently needed. Extreme poverty, when combined with ignorance, breeds that lack of desire for better things which has been called wantlessness, the resigned acceptance of a subhuman lot. But extreme poverty, when it is combined with the knowledge that some societies are affluent, breeds envious desires uh, and the expectation that these desires must of necessity and very soon be satisfied. By means of the mass media, those easily <coughs> exportable products of advancing science and technology, some knowledge of what life is like in affluent societies has been widely, distribute, uh, widely disseminated among the world's underdeveloped regions. But alas, the science and technology which have given the industrial West its cars, refrigerators and contraceptives have given the people of Asia, Africa and Latin America only movies and radio broadcasts which uh, they are too simple-minded to be able to criticize together with a population explosion which they are still too poor and too tradition-bound to be able to control by deliberate family planning. In the context of a three or even of a mere two percent annual increase in numbers, high expectations are foredoomed to disappointment. From disappointment through resentful frustration to widespread social unrest, the road is short. Shorter still is the road from social unrest through chaos to dictatorship, possibly of the Communist Party, more probably of, of generals and colonels. It would seem then that for two-thirds of the human race, and the two-thirds of the human race now suffering from the consequences of uncontrolled breeding in a context of industrial backwardness, poverty and illiteracy, the prospects for democracy during the next 10 or 20 years are poor in the extreme. From underdeveloped societies and the probable political consequences of their explosive increase in numbers, we now pass to the prospects for democracy in the fully industrialized, contraceptive-using societies of the West. It used to be assumed that political freedom was a necessary precondition of scientific research. Ideological dogmatism and dictatorial institutions were supposed to be incompatible with the open-mindedness and the freedom of experimental action, in the absence of which discovery and invention are impossible. Recent history has proved these comforting assumptions to be completely unfounded. It was under Stalin that Russian scientists developed the A-bomb and a few years later the H-bomb. And it is under a more than Stalinist dictatorship that Chinese scientists are now in process of performing the same feat. Another disquieting lesson of recent history is that in a developing society, science and technology 
can be used exclusively for the enhancement of military power, not at all for the benefit of the masses. Russia has demonstrated, and China is now doing its best to demonstrate, that poverty and primitive conditions of life for the overwhelming majority of the population are perfectly compatible with the wholesale production of the most advanced and sophisticated military hardware. Indeed, it is by deliberately imposing poverty on the masses that the rulers of developing industrial nations are able to create the capital necessary for building an armament industry and maintaining a well-equipped army with which to play their part in the suicidal game of international power politics. We see then the democratic institutions and libertarian traditions are not at all necessary to the progress of science and technology and that such progress does not of itself make for human betterment at home and peace abroad. Only where democratic institutions already exist, only where the masses can vote their rulers out of office and so compel them to pay some attention to the popular will, are science and technology used for the benefit of the majority as well as for increasing the power of the state. And even where democratic institutions exist, science, technology and preparation for war combine to pose a serious threat to civil and political liberty. A few days before he left the White House, President Eisenhower delivered a farewell address in which he urged his fellow countrymen to guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. And he added that we must never let the weight of this military-industrial combination endanger our liberties or our democratic processes. Most human beings prefer a measure of freedom to being constantly pushed around, prefer peace to war, and would much rather be alive than dead. But in every part of the world, in democratically organized countries, as well as in countries under dictatorships, men and women have been brought up to regard nationalism as axiomatic and war between nations as something cosmically ordained by God or fate or the essential nature of things. Prisoners of their culture, the masses, even in those countries where they are free to vote, are prevented by the basic postulates in terms of which they do their thinking and their feeling from summarily decreeing an end to the collective paranoia that governs international relations. As for the world's ruling minorities, by the very fact of their position and their power, they are chained even more closely to the current systems of ideas and the prevailing political customs. For this reason, they are even less capable than their subjects of expressing the simple human preference for life and peace. Someday, let us hope, rulers and ruled will break out of the cultural prison in which they are now confined. Some day, and may that day come soon, for thanks to our rapidly advancing science and technology, we have very little time at our disposal. The river of change flows ever faster, and somewhere downstream, perhaps only a few years ahead, we shall come to the rapids, 
shall hear louder and ever louder the roaring of the cataract. Modern war is a product of advancing science and technology. Conversely, advancing science and technology are products of modern war. Nuclear fusion and nuclear fission have revolutionized war, but it was in order to wage war more effectively that first the United States, then Britain and the USSR financed the crash programs that resulted so quickly in the harnessing of atomic forces, primarily for military purposes, and secondarily as a byproduct of the A-bomb, as a source of industrial power. Again, it was primarily for military purposes with the techniques of automation, which are now in process of revolutionizing industrial production and the whole system of administrative and bureaucratic control, were first developed. During World War II, writes Mr. John Diebold, the theory and use of feedback was studied in great detail by a number of scientists both in this country and in Britain. The introduction of rapidly moving aircraft very quickly made traditional gun-laying techniques of anti-aircraft warfare obsolete. As a result, a large part of scientific manpower in this country was directed towards the development of self-regulating devices and systems to control our military equipment. It is out of this work that the technology of automation as we understand it today has developed. The headlong rapidity with which scientific and technological changes, with all their disturbing consequences in the fields of politics and social relations are taking place, is due in large measure to the fact that both in the USA and the USSR, research in pure and applied science is lavishly financed by military planners whose first concern is the development of bigger and better weapons in the shortest possible time. In the frantic effort on one side of the Iron Curtain to keep up with the Joneses, on the other side to keep up with the Ivanovs, these military planners spend gigantic sums on research and development. The military revolution advances under forced draft, and as it goes forward, it initiates uh, an uninterrupted succession of industrial, social, and political revolutions. It is against this background of chronic upheaval that the members of a species biologically and historically adapted to a slowly changing environment must now live out their bewildered lives. Old-fashioned war was incompatible while it was being waged with democratic institutions. Nuclear war, if it is ever waged, will prove in all likelihood to be incompatible with civilization and perhaps with human survival. Meanwhile, what of the preparations for nuclear war? If certain physicists and military planners had their way, democracy where it exists would be replaced by a system of regimentation centered upon the bomb shelter. The entire population would have to be systematically drilled in the ticklish operation of going underground at a moment's notice, systematically uh, exercised in the art of living troglodytically under conditions resembling those in the hold of an 18th century slave ship. 
The notion fills most of us with horror, but if we fail to break out of the ideological prison of our nationalistic and bellicose culture, we may find ourselves compelled by the military consequences of our science and technology to descend into the steel and concrete dungeons of total and totalitarian civil defense. In the past, one of the most effective guarantees of liberty was governmental inefficiency. <laughs> the spirit of tyranny was always willing, but its technical and organizational flesh was generally weak. Today, the flesh is as strong as the spirit. Governmental organization is a fine art based upon scientific principles and disposing of marvelously efficient equipment. Fifty years ago, an armed revolution still had some chance of success. In the context of modern weaponry, a popular uprising is foredoomed. Crowds armed with rifles and homemade grenades are no match for tanks. And it is not only in its armament that a modern government owes its overwhelming power, it also possesses the strength of superior knowledge derived from its communication systems, its uh, stores of accumulated data, its batteries of computers, its network of uh, inspection and administration. Where democratic institutions exist and the masses can vote their rulers out of office, the enormous powers with which science, technology and the arts of organization have endowed the ruling minority are used with some discretion and a decent regard for civil and political liberty. Where the masses can exercise no control over their rulers, these powers are used without compunction to enforce ideological orthodoxy and to strengthen the dictatorial state. The nature of science and technology is such that it is peculiarly easy for a dictatorial government to use them for its own anti-democratic purposes. Well-financed, equipped and organized, an astonishingly small number of scientists and technologists can achieve prodigious results. The crash program which produced the A-bomb and ushered in a new era, historical era was planned and uh, directed by some 4,000 theoreticians, experimenters and engineers. To parody the words of Winston Churchill, never have so many been so completely at the mercy of so few. <laughs> Throughout the 19th century, the state was relatively feeble and its interest in and influence upon scientific research was negligible. In our day, the state is everywhere exceedingly powerful and everywhere a lavish patron of basic and ad hoc research. In Western Europe and North America, the relations between the state and its scientists on the one hand and individual citizens, professional organizations, industrial, commercial and educational institutions on the other are fairly satisfactory. Advancing science, uh, the population explosion, the armament race and the steady increase and centralization of political and economic power are still compatible in countries that have a libertarian tradition with democratic forms of government. To maintain this compatibility in a rapidly changing world bearing less and less resemblance 
to the world in which these democratic institutions were developed. This, quite obviously, is going to be increasingly difficult. A rapid and accelerating population increase that will nullify the best efforts of underdeveloped societies to better their lot and will keep two-thirds of the human race in a condition of misery in anarchy or of misery under dictatorship and the intensive preparations for a new kind of war that if it breaks out may bring irretrievable ruin to the one-third of the human race now living prosperously in highly industrialized societies these are the two main threats to democracy now confronting us. Can these threats be eliminated, or if not eliminated, at least reduced? My own view is that it is only by shifting our collective attention from the merely political to the basic biological aspects of the human situation that we can hope to mitigate and shorten the time of troubles into which it would seem we are now moving. We have to get it into our collective head that the basic problem now confronting us is ecological. How does the human race propose to survive and, if possible, better the lot of all its members? Do we propose to live on this planet in symbiotic harmony with our environment? Or, preferring uh, to be wantonly stupid, shall we choose to live like murderous and suicidal parasites that kill their host and so destroy themselves. It might be sensible to think less about the problem of landing a couple of astronauts on the moon and rather more about the problem of enabling three billion men, women and children who in less than 40 years will be six billions to lead a tolerably human existence without in the process ruining and befouling their planetary environment. Indeed, I believe that it is only by cultivating this kind of ecological thinking that we shall be able to <coughs> reduce the threat of war. Rationalized and justified in terms of national ideals and dogmatic ideology, power politics raises problems that except by war are almost insoluble. The problems of ecology, on the other hand, admit of a rational solution and can be tackled without arousing the violent passions always associated with nationalism and ideology. There may be arguments about the best way of raising wheat in a cold climate or of reforesting a denuded mountain, but such arguments never lead to organized slaughter. Organized slaughter is the result of arguments about such questions as the following, which is the best nation, the best religion, the best political theory, and the best form of government. Why are other people so stupid and wicked? Why aren't, can't they see how good and intelligent we are? Why do they resist our beneficent efforts to bring them under our control and make them like ourselves? To questions of this kind, the final answer has always been war. War, said Clausewitz, is not merely a political act, it is a real political instrument, a co continuation of previous political relationships, a continuation of policy by other means. This was true enough in the 1820s when Clausewitz wrote his famous treatise, and it continued to be more or less true until 1945. Now, pretty obviously, nuclear weapons 
long-range rockets, nerve gases, bacterial aerosols, and the laser, that highly promising latest addition to the world's military arsenals, have given the lie to Clausewitz. All-out war with modern weapons is no longer a continuation of previous policy. It is a complete and irreversible break with previous policy. Uh, power politics and national, nationalism and dogmatic ideology are luxuries which the human race can no longer afford. Nor as a species can we afford the luxury of ignoring man's ecological situation by shifting our attention from the now completely irrelevant and uh, anachronistic politics of nationalism and military power to the problems of the human uh, species and the still inchoate politics of human ecology, we shall be killing two birds with one stone, reducing the threat of sudden destruction by scientific war and at the same time reducing the threat of more gradual biological disaster. In the process of reducing these twin threats, we shall find no doubt that we have done something in President Wilson's prematurely optimistic words to make the world safe for democracy. Mr. Huxley sees three problems, population, arms race, nationalism, and believes that we should shift our attention from politics to ecology in order to engage in arguments which will not result in war and to divert our attention from those arguments which are certain to result in war. I would like to begin by asking Mr. Huxley for an item of clarification. As he sounded his original attack on politics, he made it very comprehensive indeed. He said, let us shift our attention from politics to ecology. He said later, and it relieved me somewhat, that what he wanted us to do was to shift our attention from the politics of nationalism and military power to ecology. And I assume all this that when you say you want us to shift our attention from politics, you do not want us to shift our attention from the problem of how you make a government intelligent and effective, or from the problem of how you make democracy work, but precisely what you said the second time, that you want to get out of a kind of politics that focuses around nationalism and military power. Well, I did speak uh, about the, the still inchoate politics of ecology. I mean, uh, it seems to me that uh, we uh, simply, as a matter of self-preservation, we have to consider the problem of man the species. After all, we've already been using this word man here without defining what we mean. It has three major meanings. I mean, man can refer to the species as a whole. Man can refer to the... Uh, the average behavior of uh, human beings within a given culture. Or else man can be the locus of unshareable experiences of, of each individual. And, I mean, of course, one of the great sort of secrets of, uh, of philosophical writing is to muddle up the three meanings and never to explain exactly what you're saying, so that almost anything can be proved when you talk about man. But uh, 
we have, I mean, the problem is, can we reconcile the basic desires and uh, tendencies and potentialities of man, the locus of uh, uh, immediate experiences, with uh, what man is doing as the uh, beneficiary and the victim of culture? And how can this all be, these two things, be related to the fate, the destiny of the species as a whole? And there is, it seems to me, I mean, of course we can't do without politics, but I mean, the, uh, what are we doing politics for? I mean, are, are we doing it for the survival of the species as a whole, or for the survival of a particular national group? I mean, are we going to indulge in nationalistic idolatry, or are we going to have some sort of overall humanistic view, which uh, entails, as well as the cultural, uh, our cultural preoccupations, the preoccupation with the destiny of man as a whole, and with the destiny of man as an individual. I mean, I, I, all that I meant was that the, the, the sort of basic frame of reference in which uh, political activities shall take place uh, shall be less uh, culture-bound and more eco ecology-bound, so to say. I uh, saw a remarkable link-up between politics and ecology the other day. A bumper strip on an automobile said, Keep Mars in Ecological Preserve. <laughs> May not be a bad idea. Do you have a question? Yes, There's been so much talk about change relating it to the problems of our society. Is there any evidence uh, at all there's been any change in man, and I'll accept any one of the, perhaps these three definitions, or three uh, characterizations. And if there, if there hasn't been, there isn't any evidence of any fundamental change in any one of those three characterizations of man. Any real basis for uh, believing that uh, we're going anywhere for, except for self-destruction. The fact is that the, uh, the fact is that this society is probably more advanced in its respect for human dignity than any society uh, in a long time in numerical terms at least. Now it's also a fact that uh, in this very advanced and sophisticated society with groups like this thinking about people and their problems, you have uh, some of the leading figures in the United States will argue that, uh, in all seriousness, that uh, <coughs> colored children ought not to be permitted to go to school with white children. Now, this is okay in 1860, I suppose, and it's okay perhaps today in Southeast Asia. And maybe uh, maybe it's even okay ten years ago. Well, isn't the evidence of change the fact that Plessy against Ferguson has been overruled? And uh, what the sentiments that you express now held by a, a minority of the people or once held by almost everybody. And can't you see similar social changes taking place all over the world in, uh, in very recent history, such as the complete transformation of England from a sink of bribery and iniquity in the 18th century into a model of administrative purity in the 19th. I don't, I don't, I don't. This seem to me kind of superficial. Well, they're no more superficial than the ones that you, than the one you selected yourself, which was the attitude toward the Negro and the South. Well, I say that has changed, and there's no indicate if that's a good example, 
Well, why not say it's evidence of change? But the real fact it hasn't, hasn't it? I mean, what well, it really mean? Mean? <laughs> The court's made an adjustment in its thinking. Well, I, I say that it's not... And that's a change, I'll grant you. <coughs> Supreme Court, Mr. Dooley used to say that the Supreme Court followed the election returns. I think that was perhaps a little too specific, but we would say, wouldn't we, that the Supreme Court is affected somewhat by changes in public opinion. Mr. Wayne? I think what uh, my friend over there is trying to say was, and what I'm inclined to say myself in part at least, is that aren't changes taking place in our environment so much more rapidly than the evolutionary changes in man? These changes are taking place so rapidly that that we're worried that man won't be able to take these changes in his stride without shattering him and completely alienating him from his existence. This is what's bothering us. And may I make one or two remarks? It is, of course, um, obviously we're under the pressure of excessively great changes, but I think one of the extraordinary things about the human being is its uh, capacity for adapting to entirely novel things. I'm old enough to remember having seen, as a very small child, Queen Victoria going for her evening um, afternoon constitutional in Windsor Park. She was in a bath chair with a very fat pony and equerries at the side and travelling at about two and a half miles an hour. I mean, this is what one regarded as the normal speed for old ladies at that time. Well, now you can see ladies of comparable age and dignity stepping on the gas along the freeway. I mean, who would have conceived that, uh, uh, at that time uh, that these uh, elderly people could possibly do the things that, in fact, they are doing now? They, I mean, this is absolutely extraordinary. The, uh, this, of course, confirms what Dr. Salk was saying about the enormous potentialities which uh, still lie waiting to be for actualization in the human mind. But it's, uh, it is quite extraordinary uh, if one has lived long enough, as I have, to, to remember uh, London and Paris without one single vehicle which was not horse-drawn, and to see now this... Uh, this extraordinary capacity, which no one suspected at that time, for immensely rapid reactions to the control of the very, very powerful machines. Uh, I mean, there is no doubt that although we are under the terrible stress at the present time, that we have extraordinary capacities for adaptation. I mean, one of the tragedies is to see that many young people, uh, hardly out of college, have developed... Uh, what may be called a kind of mental arteriosclerosis, 40 years before they develop physical arteriosclerosis. On the other hand, you will see people 90 years old, like Bertrand Russell. I mean, the last time I saw Russell, uh, he made a wonderful remark. It was at my brother's house, and my brother was talking about some curious fact of animal behavior. Uh, Russell listened very carefully, and he said, how nice it is to know things. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Although those dire warnings that Aldous Huxley gave in the lecture we just heard uh, were delivered over 48 years ago, or almost 48 years ago, uh, they they probably could have been given last night. Uh, 
As my dear departed mother would say, everything's different, but nothing's changed. Now, I don't know about you, but I was really mesmerized when Huxley was uh, talking just now about being in London and Paris when every vehicle was horse-drawn. It made me think of the story that uh, my stepfather, Leo Altapeter, told uh, about the time when almost everyone in the small farming town he lived in drove into Chicago to witness the landing of the very first twin-engine airplane to touch down in Illinois. He said that uh, at the time, most of them simply didn't believe something that big could fly. And uh, by the way, Leo wasn't all that much older than me, which is uh, a little scary now that I think about it. As a as a boy, uh, the crystal radio set that I built was uh, considered state-of-the-art, do-it-yourself electronic technology for the day. Uh, it was uh, the leading edge of high-tech because uh, transistors would still have to wait for over a decade or, or more to be invented. <laughs> uh, today, uh, kids that are that age are building websites that are even more sophisticated than anything I ever did when I was still coding for a living. And uh, even though I was a founding member of Verizon's first Internet and Java development group and uh, spoke at conferences like Java One, uh, extolling the future possibilities of the net, I have to admit that uh, I failed as a futurist because uh, even I didn't foresee watching YouTube videos on an iPhone while walking down the street. It's a new world. I guess uh, what got me into this loop was Huxley's statement that when he was quite young, there was no one alive who could have predicted the world of 1962. What that means is uh, that right now, right at this very moment in time, there's simply no way, uh, even in our wildest dreams, that uh, we can foresee what the next 48 years are going to bring. And uh, unfortunately, even under the most optimistic predictions about longevity, there's no way I'm going to be here to find out. Uh, so for your sake, I hope it's all ducky. And uh, and it will be for you, I'm sure, as, uh, as long as you follow your heart and uh, not that overactive mind of yours. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for now. And uh, so I'll close today's podcast uh, again by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, if you're interested in the philosophy behind the salon, uh, you can hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which uh, is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>